All right, so today we're going to talk about living water, which is a figurative phrase that Jesus used on two different occasions as recorded uh, by the Apostle John in the Gospel of John. The first time Jesus used the phrase, you know this, was back in chapter 4 when he was having a discussion with the Samaritan woman. And so as the Samaritan woman was drawing out water from Jacob's well, Jesus asked her for a drink. And her response was incredulous. She was shocked. And she actually said to him, how, how come you, a Jew, are asking me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? And so, of course, you know this as well. Because of the cultural tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, this woman was surprised that Jesus would even be speaking to her. But Jesus had a lot more to say to her. And what he said was powerful. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you, what kind of water do you tell me? Living water. A little later in the conversation, Jesus added this. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to what kind of life? Eternal life. And so we learned when we studied chapter four that the phrase living water is simply a metaphor for eternal life, which is given to believers in Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so when a person turns to Jesus Christ in genuine repentance and faith, the Holy Spirit enters into that person, cleanses them of all their sins, past, present, and future, and gives them new life, gives them a new birth. And that leads us to this very important point, and that is that the Holy Spirit is the mediator of our new life in Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the New Testament is clear. The Holy Spirit is the go-between, so to speak. He's the one who imparts new life, spiritual life, eternal life that Christ alone can provide. Did you guys know that each member of the Trinity has a role in our salvation? You see, we believe that there is one God. Can you guys please say one God? We believe there's one God eternally existent in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, did you know that each member of the Trinity has a role in your salvation? And so when you get down on your knees and you pray to the Lord, every once in a while you should thank the Father for choosing you before the foundation of the world. You should thank the Son for coming and dying on a cross and rising from the dead. And you should thank the Holy Spirit that, what did he do? He imparted spiritual life, eternal life, new life to you when you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. I'm just wondering, how many people this morning are grateful for the grace of our triune God today? I'm grateful. And listen, we should always have attitudes of gratitude. Don't give in to the flesh and be grumpy. 
So we're gonna finish chapter seven today, Lord willing, and Jesus is gonna use the phrase living water again today in chapter seven. And so later in our text, he's gonna shout to this huge crowd. He's gonna say, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I love that. In chapter four, the Lord spoke about living waters being a spring within us, welling up to eternal life. But now in chapter seven, he's talking about living water that is flowing out of the hearts of believers like a river. And so what we, what's gonna happen is when we get to verses 37 through 39, we're gonna pump the brakes. We are going to hit the brakes and we're gonna spend some time. We're not just gonna talk about living water. We're gonna talk about rivers of living water. Now, last week I told you that chapter seven takes place within the context of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And we learned last week um, that in the September, October time frame, Jewish pilgrims from all over the Roman Empire would pack their bags and they would drive, uh, they would uh, uh, go in caravans all the way to Jerusalem. When they arrived there, the families, mom, dad, the kids, they would go and they would find different leafy branches and they would build a temporary shelter a makeshift lean-to, so to speak, out of these leafy branches, and they would camp out under the stars for seven days. Why did they do that? It was a commemorative act. Why? They were remembering how God lovingly, graciously, wonderfully provided for the ancient Israelites after their exodus from Egypt as they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years, camping out (laughs) underneath the stars before they entered into the promised land. And so that's the context of chapter seven. It's the Feast of Booths. Initially, Jesus went up to the feast privately, but in the middle of the feast, about three or four days in, All of a sudden, he goes public. He stands up and he begins to teach publicly. Now, some people thought he was a deceiver. You can't win them all. There's some people, they just harden their hearts, they put up the wall, they're gonna do their own thing, they're gonna go their own way, and there's nothing you can say to persuade them. There was people like that 2,000 years ago. They thought he was a deceiver. But the good news is many in the crowd believed he was the true Messiah because of all the miracles that he performed. Of course, the religious leaders, they hated Jesus, at least the majority of them. We're talking about the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of Israel made up of Sadducees and Pharisees. We're talking about the chief priests, right? These guys despised the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, and because of their control over the people, everybody's afraid to speak openly about Jesus. We see that, by the way, in verse 13. Can you look back by way of review at chapter 7, verse 13? It says, yet for fear of 
the Jews. That's not talking about the nation of Jews. That's talking about the religious leaders in the context. Yet for fear of the Jewish religious leaders, no one spoke openly of him. Now when you can't speak openly, what do you do? You whisper, you mutter, you speak underneath your breath. And so last week, we left off in verse 31. And so look at verse 31 again. It says, yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, when the Messiah appears, will he do more signs, more miracles than this man has done? And so the idea here is they're muttering, they're whispering, hey, hey, did you see Jesus did another miracle? I mean, how can this guy not be the Messiah? Shh, here comes the Pharisees, right? That's what's going on right now in your Bible. And so last week we ended in verse 31. Today we're picking it up in verse 32. If you're looking at verse 32, please say amen. amen. And the Pharisees heard the crowd, what's the next word? Whispering, muttering these things about Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees, they're thinking enough is enough. And so they sent officers to arrest him. The officers that were sent to arrest Jesus were not Roman soldiers here. They were Levites or descendants from the tribe of Levi. Okay, you guys remember reading Genesis, right? You guys remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, also known as Israel. And how many sons did Jacob have? You tell me. Twelve. And one of his sons was named Levi. Well, it was the descendants of Levi that were destined to become um, the priests at least those who descended from Aaron, okay? And so you fast forward from the man Levi, son of Jacob, and you get all the way to about 1500 BC, and the most famous Levite was the big brother of Moses. His name was Aaron. And so God ordained Aaron as the, he was a Levite, as the first high priest of Israel, and God ordained that it would be the descendants of Aaron that would make up the priestly family. They would be the priests, okay? So I wanna make sure I get this right. Um, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. You guys getting this? Okay, so the descendants of Levi, lots of them, lots of Levites. But from the family of Aaron, that's the priestly family. So what do all these other Levites do? Well, God ordained them, chose them to perform certain duties in the tabernacle and later the temple. Uh, and some of them served as law enforcement officers in order to keep the peace around the temple area. And so we call them temple guards. We call them temple police. And so the uh, Pharisees, the uh, chief priests, the Sanhedrin, say, hey, Levites, temple police, come over here. We want you to go, and we want you to arrest that troublemaker, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And so as they're approaching Jesus, here's what you need to know. Jesus is publicly teaching and the police are closing in on him and he is not alarmed one bit. You know why? Because Jesus knows my father is sovereign and my life is in his hands. This is the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacle. It happens in October. Jesus knows I'm not gonna give my life as the Lamb of God until the Feast of Passover six months later in April. So I don't have anything to be concerned about. I'm just gonna keep on teaching. I'm gonna keep on preaching. Some of you need to know before I go to the next verse, something's closing in on you. Something's troubling you. Something is trying to uh, disturb you. Here's what you need to know. You need to remind yourself not to be afraid because your God is in control. And all things, can you guys say, say the words all things, please? All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So guess what? Pardon the bad English, you ain't got nothing to worry about. Just keep moving forward. And so, we see now in verse 33, Jesus then said to the crowd, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. I kind of think the context here is Jesus looks over his shoulders and he sees the temple guards closing in and it's like, I'm still gonna be with you a little longer here. They're not gonna take me. And then, i.e. Passover, I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me where I am, you cannot come. Now when Jesus said, I'm going to him who sent me, obviously he's speaking about the Father. And so what's gonna happen six months from where we are in our Bible? He is willingly gonna go to a cross, he's gonna suffer, he's gonna die, he's gonna be buried, he's gonna rise from the dead, and then he's going to ascend back into heaven to the right hand of the Father. Of course, the religious leaders have no idea what he's talking about, they're misunderstanding everything, and they say now in their bewilderment, in verse 35, the Jews, the religious leaders, said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the, look at this word here, dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot Come, And so the word dispersion in Greek is diaspora. Diaspora, I've taught you this before. The diaspora, the dispersion, um, refers to those Jews who left Judea over the years and they were scattered all around the Roman Empire. And one of the main places they went to was Greece. There was a huge Jewish community up in Greece. And so the religious leaders are like, what's he talking about? He's going away. Is he going to go to Greece? And is he going to expand his ministry to the Gentiles there? And now we look at verse 37. Okay, so now the next three verses, this is the main part of the message. I hope right now that you'll say a little prayer in your heart. God, speak to me. 
And by the way, you need to be humble for him to speak to you. If you're looking at verse 37, say amen. Amen. On the last day of the feast, Feast of Booths, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now before I explain this powerful, powerful statement from the Lord, um, I need to kind of give you some historical background so you understand what's going on. All right, so God Way back under the Old Covenant in the Old Testament in Leviticus, God gave specific instructions of how he wanted um, his people to conduct the Feast of Booths. That's in Leviticus 23. But you need to know that over the years, the Jews added a celebratory ritual during this seven-day feast. Nothing wrong with that. I think it actually is pretty cool what they did. And so the ritual had to do with pouring out water that they gathered from the pool of Siloam each morning of the feast. And so I hope you know, I hope you've been reading through your Bible, but the pool of Siloam is most famous for what's going to happen when we get to John chapter 9, when Jesus heals the blind man. And by the way, If you ever choose to go with us to Israel, we go there every two years, we will take you to the pool of Siloam. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the actual pool from Jesus' day, which was excavated by archaeologists, guess when? In 2004. 2004, do you know how they found it? There were some workers and they were digging trying to fix a sewage pipe, and all of a sudden, ding, you know, they come upon something, and they call in the archaeologists, and they excavate it, and it's the actual pool of Siloam. Now, for those doubters out there who are skeptical right now, um, here's what I want you to do. Go to YouTube later. Don't do it now. Um, Go to YouTube later, and just type in Pool of Siloam, Discover 2004. You're going to see, I watched it this week, a CNN interview between the CNN reporter and the actual um, archaeologist who excavated the Pool of Siloam. Ladies and gentlemen, sacred and secular people know this is the actual thing. So, and by the way, I had the privilege and the honor of standing there a couple months ago and giving a devotional from a team from this church who went with us to Israel. And so here's my point. That when we read the Bible, we're not reading a bunch of myths. When we read the Bible, we're reading about historical facts that took place in real places, places that archaeologists are still uncovering in our modern age. And so this is possibly what the Pool of Siloam looked like in Jesus' day. And it was fed by the Gihon Spring. Now, that's a story in and of itself, but um, 
I think it was 800, 700 plus years before Jesus, King Hezekiah actually built the pool of Siloam. Now, why did he do that? He did that because in case his enemies would ever come and surround the the walls of Jerusalem, they would have a fresh water source within the gates of the city. And guess what he had to do? He had to tell his men to cut through about 2,000 feet of rock between the Gihon Spring and the actual pool of Siloam. We call it Hezekiah's Tunnel. And so if you go with us to Israel, you'll have your opportunity one morning to put on your bathing suit and your flip-flops, and you'll be able to travel, it takes about 30, 35 minutes, through Hezekiah's Tunnel, which in some places is this tall and this wide where you gotta do this and there's water up to your knees and it's pitch black. I'm not going through that thing with you. I'll be sipping a Coke at the end, (laughs) waiting for you to come. But if you wanna do, I'm claustrophobic by the way. And so there's no way. Actually, I did it, okay? Praise goes to God. The first time we went to Israel, um, I walked up to, and all of a sudden it said, warning, if you have claustrophobia, and I freaked out, and so I was like, see you guys later, and I left left the team. I felt like this. The second time I went to Israel, I was like, God, you're my Lord, and I'm not supposed to be afraid, and so I'm going. And you know what I did? I put worship music on, I was the first one in line, and I like almost jogged through that whole thing to get through it. But I'm not going back through it, okay? Okay, just so you know. But guess what? When you go through Hezekiah's tunnel, guess what you come upon? The pool of Siloam. And so I wanna encourage you guys, every two years we go, think about it, pray about it, save for it, but we would love to uh, be able to take you. Back to the Bible here. During the Feast of Booths, every morning for seven days, the priests would go to this pool and they would um, uh, put water into a golden vessel from the pool of Siloam. Then, guess what they did? The priests, with this filled vessel, they would march in procession to the temple. This is all part of the feast, every morning. And they march to the temple. And you see on both sides of the temple, there's this massive area. That's the court of the Gentiles. It's enormous. I've been up there before. Of course, now it's the Dome of the Rock, not the Jewish temple. But it's absolutely massive. And so I want you to imagine thousands of Jews on the court of the Gentiles, and maybe some Gentiles too who are visiting Israel, right? And, and here comes the procession of priests and they're carrying the filled um, vessel. And they go into the inner courts, the inner four walls. And there's a thing called the brazen altar. And they, gotta get this, if you're listening, say amen here. They pour the water out next to the altar. First, they filled the cup, now they're pouring it out. All this was to commemorate and remind the Jews of how God poured out water from the rock to satisfy the thirst of their ancient ancestors as they were wandering around in the wilderness. You can read about this in Exodus 17, Numbers chapter 20, and Psalm 78. And so speaking about God's care for the ancient Israelites, the poet, the worship leader, Asaph, he wrote this. 
He said, in the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them, what's the next word there? Drink, this is in the middle of a desert. But he gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and cause waters to flow down like what? Rivers. And so the pouring out of water ceremony was done every morning for seven straight days during the Feast of Booths, and it reminded the Jews of that. Jehovah Jireh, my provider, and how he made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. This was an exciting time for Israel, and ladies and gentlemen, you need to know this, the people absolutely celebrated. As I was reading about this this week, Here's what I found out. I found out that as the priests were taking the filled vessel from the pool of Siloam to the altar, what were people doing? They were shouting. They were singing. They were blowing the shofar. You guys don't know what a shofar is, right? It's a ram's horn that they use as a trumpet. Somebody a couple of weeks ago in this church gave me an authentic shofar. I was like, cool, thank you. But here's what you need to know. How many of you guys know that God still provides for his people today? So what should we do? We should sing about it. We should shout about it. We should celebrate it. That's what we should do. I'm not gonna bring my shofar and blow it here in church, right? I'll blow it for my wife at home. But you get the idea here. Ladies and gentlemen, what has happened to the church? Well, we're all so somber and we're all so quiet all the time. We need to look at the Jews from the Old Testament and we need to get a little bit of that celebratory spirit. Listen, when you come into church on Sunday morning, when you come into church on Sunday morning, I get it, you're tired, I get it, I feel the same way. You maybe have, you haven't had your coffee yet or whatever, but how many of you guys know that God deserves our praise even when we don't feel like it? Even when we don't feel like it, our flesh will never feel like it. That's why we need to stir ourselves up. We need to renew our minds about what God has done for us. And we need to come into this place and we need to worship him and we need to praise him. And so regarding the Feast of Booths, God said this back in Leviticus. Old covenant stuff, but I wanna show you what he told the Israelites to do. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. And on the, what day? Eighth day. That's interesting. You shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall do no ordinary work. So things are quieting down here, it seems like. You see, on the eighth day, the priest would not perform the pouring out of water ritual. But the people would still gather on the eighth day for a holy convocation. What does that mean? A sacred assembly. So I want you to picture the scene as we're switching gears here a little bit. As thousands were gathered on the eighth 
day of the Feast of Booths, during which they did not pour the water out. And seems like everybody's kind of quiet now. It's in that context that Jesus stands. If you're there, it would have sent chills down your spine. Because it's in that context that Jesus stands up and he actually cries out. He shouts, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He shouts it. So everybody can hear it. Why? Because nothing's more important than what Jesus has to say. And if anyone thirsts, he said, let him come to me. Come to me and drink. And you know all those religious leaders' faces were turning red and their heads are about to explode. But Jesus doesn't care because he knows that I am the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but through me. Now, I read different guys during the week as I'm studying, preparing for these messages. Um, it, by the way, the guys that I read, I don't always agree with everything they say. Um, but one of the guys that I read every week uh, is John MacArthur. And I like what he said about this. He said, these words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. These words summarize the gospel invitation. And I have this underlined here. A recognition of need. Now the reason I have that underlined is because ladies and gentlemen, don't you know there's thousands of people sitting in churches and they're not saved. They're not saved. And the reason they're not saved is because they've never recognized their need for salvation. And so a recognition of need leads to an approach to the source of provision followed by receiving what is needed. The thirsty, needy soul feels the craving to come to the Savior and drink. That is, receive the salvation that he offers. And so the question is, have you come to the place in your life whether you're in this room or maybe you're watching, have you come to the place in your life where you've recognized your need to be saved? You say saved from what? Saved from your sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? Death. That's not just physical death, that's spiritual death. And spiritual death is not annihilation. It is eternal conscious separation from God. But how many of you guys are glad that God so loved the world? He gave his one and only son, right? He's, listen to me, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But here's the thing, if you're a sinner, and all of us are, then you need a savior, you need a savior. You say, well, how can I receive the salvation that Christ offers? He says it right there in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, 
All right, so that's such an important word that sometimes is so misunderstood. I'll redefine it uh, using Vine's expository dictionary. What does the word believe mean? It means to be persuaded of and hence to place confidence in. My favorite word, to trust. This is personal trust. To trust, to have reliance upon, not mere credence, not mere intellectual assent. And so here's the gospel right here. If you're listening, say amen here. Here's the gospel. The eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. What did he do? He left heaven and he entered time and space to the womb of a virgin. He clothed himself with humanity. Fully God, fully man. And what did he do? He lived a perfect life and he never sinned one time. He was the spotless lamb of God. And he willingly went to a cross, a Roman cross. And they lifted him up. And as Jesus hung on the cross, what was going on? Here's what's going on. He died for our sins in our place as our substitute. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. We deserve that judgment. We deserve to die and wake up in hell and pay for our sins forever. But God said, listen, I love you. And God has done everything he can do in order to save us. He sent his son, his one and only son. Jesus bore the wrath of God that we should have received in our place. And he died and was buried and he rose from the dead three days later. And now he offers salvation. Listen, he offers a personal relationship to anybody, anywhere, who will turn to Christ in genuine repentance and faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of their life. And when you do that, guess what? The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes inside of you, cleanses you of all your sins, and gives you new spiritual life. That is the gospel. You can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And by the way, he desires that so much. He wants people to have a personal relationship with him. It begins at our conversion. But listen, how many of you guys know it should go on for the rest of our lives, this personal relationship with the Lord? He desires this. The other day, I really wanted to sleep in. It's one of those days, you've ever had them, where you're tired and it's like, I just really need to, I wanna sleep as long as I can sleep. And so I had a workout scheduled for the next day and so I set my alarm for like 25 minutes before the workout. And man, I was gonna enjoy a long night's sleep wake up, do my workout, and then later on, have my devotions. And you know what happened? About an hour before my alarm goes off, my eyes pop open. And you know the first thing I think is? Man, I wanna sleep. But then, you know what I thought? My second thought was, he wants to spend time with me. So I got my Bible like I always do, Got my coffee. How many of you guys know you can't have devotions without coffee? <laughs> God loves coffee. If you haven't, if you haven't heard, Hebrews <laughs> is in the Bible. Right? Coffee, Bible, 
headsets to worship the Lord. I can't sing like Pastor Reagan, but I can sing. I can make a joyful noise to the Lord. And he, he wants to, listen, can you please schedule a time every day and sit at feet, Jesus' feet? He can satisfy that thirst that you have inside. Did you know that our world is thirsty, not just for physical water, they're thirsty for spiritual water, for spiritual life, whether people realize it or not, they're thirsty for God. Why? Because he designed it that way. He has created inside of human beings this inner vacuum, this inner thirst. And world, speaking in worldly terms, that thirst is unquenchable because nothing in the world can satisfy that thirst except for the Lord. And people try to satisfy it. They try to satisfy it with money. They try to satisfy it with sex. They try to satisfy it with drugs. They try to satisfy it with alcohol. They try to satisfy it by, by being driven to be a success or whatever. But guess what? At the end, they're still empty. They're still thirsty. And that's why Jesus stood up. And that's why he shouted out to the people, come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. I can quench that inner thirst. And not only will I give you living water, man, I'll flow through you like living water, like a river so you can be a blessing to others. Look at verse 39. Now this he said about the who? People call him the forgotten member of the Trinity. It's so true in our, many of our churches today. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, after he is glorified in heaven, you guys know the answer to this. You can say it out loud. After Jesus went up, who came down? The Holy Spirit. And when did he come down? Yes. Praise the Lord. You guys have been listening. The day of Pentecost. We're talking about new covenant. We're talking about age of grace. We're talking about church age. Listen, in the Old Testament, he would come and go, come and go. Of course, he would anoint people in the Old Testament, but he didn't permanently indwell them in the Old Testament. But now under the new covenant, he comes to stay. And that happened for the first time on the day of Pentecost. Another guy that I read, um, not every week, but I'd say probably every three weeks, is John Phillips. John Phillips wrote this. On the day of Pentecost, the rivers began to flow. The church was born. Thousands were saved. That ever-flowing river flows still. Those who come to Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who is abundantly able to, what's the next word there? Shout it out. Fill, that's different from indwell. Who is abundantly able to fill them and pour 
out his blessing to others. Ladies and gentlemen, when the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, yes, he indwelt the believers, but that's not all that he did. He also empowered them. Figuratively speaking, he filled them to overflowing. Why? So that he could gush out of them like a torrent of living water to be a spiritual blessing to thousands of other people who were gathered on the day of Pentecost. That's why. And the question is this. Do you guys think that the Lord is done working that way? No. No. No, he is not done working that way. He still wants the rivers to flow. And that's why Paul said to the Ephesian Christians, we're talking about saved people. We're talking about people who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit under the inspiration of God. Paul writes in the graphe to these Christians. He says, don't get drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, continue, Christian, to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I really believe this is one of the missing links in the church today. We need the power of the Holy Spirit again in the church. Some think the, the greatest capacity is, uh, our greatest capacity as humans is to contain the Holy Spirit, you know? The Holy Spirit lives in me. That's great. Praise the Lord. I'm happy for you. But there's more. There is more. The Spirit wants to flow out of us to bless others. I love what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, he, Christ, was able to satisfy thirst and moreover that those who receive such satisfaction from him should become, shout out the word please, channels through whom the overflowing rivers should pass. And so after the Holy Spirit indwells us at our conversion, he wants us, all of us, everybody in this room, everybody watching, don't tune me out. He wants to do this in your life. He wants to flow out of you so that he can bless, bless others however he chooses. However, he, he's sovereign. You can't program this. You can't put it in a list. You can't you know, plan to do it. You can't work it up. You can't work it up. God's gotta bring it down. And so the Holy Spirit wants to move still today. He wants to move through us. And, and maybe it's his, it's, it's his love that he wants to flow through you. It's his power that he wants to flow through you. It's his wisdom that he wants to flow through you. It's his presence that he wants to flow through you. It's his peace that he wants to flow through you. It's his hope. How many of you guys know people need hope today? He wants to flow his hope through you. He wants to flow his healing through you. How many of you guys believe that God still heals today? God still does miracles today. Come on, there should be more people agreeing with me here. We don't, listen, church is not something we sit in a row and have an intellectual in, uh, um, exercise where we can get smarter. Who needs that? People need the Lord. They need to be touched by the Lord. They need the Lord to come and, and help them in the time of their darkness and the time of their despair. Can we please become a community of believers? that are open to being channels of the Holy Spirit of God. 
And so in the light of our text, here's my question. Are you allowing living water to be poured out from your life every day just like the physical water was poured out from the priest's vessel every day during the Feast of Booths? Please stay with me to the end. Verse 40. When they, the crowd, heard these words, Jesus shouting, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. <laughs> the promised prophet from Deuteronomy 18, 15. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They're always hung up on this whole Galilee thing. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Okay, so they knew where Jesus grew up, but no one's told them where he was born. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? He still has six months. And so though many Jews believed that the prophet and the Christ were the one and the same person, which is right, there were some Jews back then that believed the prophet, Deuteronomy 18, 15 and following, and the Christ, the son of David, were two separate people. Well, that's wrong. We know, as we read the whole scriptures, that the prophet, the great prophet that Moses said would come, and the son of David, 2 Samuel 7, Paul says it in Romans 1, 3, the son of David, the Messiah, they're one and the same person. His name is Jesus Christ. And even though he grew up in Galilee, guess where he was born? You guys know this, Bethlehem. And did you know, way back in the Old Testament, there's this little book called Micah. Micah was an Old Testament prophet. And hundreds of years before Messiah came, he prophesied what city Messiah would be born in. That's what the crowd was talking about. Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. We know the gospel records it. He was born in Bethlehem. Now, as we're winding down, do you guys remember the temple police who were sent to arrest Jesus? Guess what? They came back empty-handed. Look at verse 45. It says that the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? It's like, where's Jesus? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. I love that. It's so true. And so this is not original with me, but somebody once said, the temple guards went to arrest Jesus, but they ended up being arrested by Jesus. The question is, have you been arrested by Jesus? Have you been captivated with him? And so... The religious leaders are fuming. They can't believe the guards didn't do what they were told to do. Verse 47, the Pharisees answered these guards, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. These guys really had a problem. And so what are they saying? 
No matter how captivated you guards are with Jesus, no matter how captivated the crowd is with Jesus, what do you expect? They're all going to hell. We're the true scholars in Israel, and if you disagree with us, you're wrong. Verse 50, I love the irony here, because one of their own number, a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin, and a scholar named Nicodemus, anybody remember him? Verse 50, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, John 3, and who was one of them, one of the Sanhedrin, said to his colleagues, verse 51, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I love this. Nicodemus takes the stand for Jesus. That's what God's calling us to do, to do as well. Take a stand for Jesus. And he's right, even though his hardened colleagues refused to listen to him, last verse, they replied to Nicodemus, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And so what do some people do when they've been stumped, when they have no response, but they don't want to admit it? Some people, when they're stumped, they have no response, they don't want to admit it, they resort to ridicule. They cut their opponent down. And that's what the Sanhedrin did to Nicodemus. Are you from Galilee? Are you one of those hicks from the sticks too? Read your Bible. No prophet comes from Galilee. Now, were they right? No, they're wrong. Does anybody know a prophet that came from Galilee in the Old Testament? Jonah, yeah. Jonah's from Galilee. We believe Nahum was from Galilee. And so they're wrong on that point. But here's how I want to end the message. Christian, listen to me. I'm so happy that you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now here's what I want to ask you to do. I want to ask you to surrender every area of your life to the Lord. Because it's in the context, you see, the question is not just do you have the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? All of you. Every room in the house. Right? The study, the kitchen, the living room, the bathroom, the bedrooms, the hallways, the garage, that back dark closet that you don't want God to see. Guess what? He sees it anyway. Here's my encouragement to you. Go home today and repent. Open the door of that closet and say, God, I'm so sorry. You can have this space too. I'm so glad you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Here's the question you gotta ask yourself. Is the Spirit of God filling me, Ephesians 5:18, to overflowing so that I can be a blessing to others?